So now we're moving forward in our uh, exposition of 1 Corinthians, Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. And Paul is still in this process of continuing to discuss the order of proper worship, of, the, of order and right assembly within the worship service. So he has covered issues um, of how we look. We talked about this idea of head coverings and how to properly understand what Paul is saying there. We talked about divisions in the church because of the Lord's Supper and how to properly have the Lord's Supper, how to properly view it and understand it. We talked about the issue of idolatry. And now we are going to move into the issue of spiritual gifts and service, service, excuse me, sorry, spiritual gifts in the service and ministry of the church. Remember, when we look at this letter in context, Paul's purpose, the reason why he's writing this is he wants to, he wants to confront some things in the church, but for the purpose of bringing about unity. Unity needs to be had within the body of Christ, and unity needs to be founded upon correct doctrine. What that means is it needs to be founded upon the truth of God's Word. Unity within the body of Christ is not this simple kumbaya, hey, uh, we're all just cool with each other, let's just, you do you, I do me, and we'll, we'll be united in, in unity. No, no, Paul is going to confront specific issues within the church that he says, these are wrong. What you need to be united on is what is correct. We're united in Christ, and because we're united in Christ and we're united to Christ, therefore we cannot be joined to things that are false. We cannot be joined to things that are wicked and evil. So these things need to be put out of the church, and we need to be unified on truth, truth in love. So um, this confusion in the church in Corinth was causing division. This confusion about proper worship, this confusion about um, sexuality and marriage, it was causing division within the church. And I think it's, it's you know, today we, we see that as well. Confusion over the Word of God causes much division in the church today. And we do have a lot of division today. And I think it's Unfortunately, the result of a lot of confusion um, is that pastors and ministers of the Word have departed from the truth and clarity of God's Word and have uh, fallen prey to uh, programs and ear-tickling and being topical instead of exegetical in their preaching uh, and expository. And so... Um, that can result in a lot of confusion, and I think it has over the years, which is why the church is in the state she is in today. But Paul is then going to get into a new, uh, not, not a new topic, but a new area within this topic of proper worship, and he wants unity in this as well. So let's go ahead, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. And then we'll pray. As you can see, it's a long passage this morning. Paul says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. 
you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would bless our time together this morning. Use me as a minister of of your word, God, that I would preach with clarity and sincerity, uh, staying true to what uh, your scripture says. I pray, God, for all of us that we would be uh, changed by the word, that our minds would be transformed and renewed, and that we would um, repent of sin in our lives and move forward in seeking you and your kingdom. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You be seated. So Paul begins, he says, now concerning spiritual gifts. If you look in your Bibles, most of that where it says gifts is probably uh, in like italics. That's because it's... um, it's actually spiritual things is more the idea that's being expressed there. But we know he's talking about gifts because of what uh, the context of our passage is revealing. That Paul is, but the reason why I think it's interesting that he uses this term spirituals, right, or spiritual things here that we translate and understand as spiritual gifts is because he's really highlighting um, not so much the gift itself, but the source, because right, he could have used the word, uh, he could have used the Greek word like uh, charismata, which would have been uh, a gift, as a, a, we would understand that. But instead he uses concerning things that are spiritual. Now some think that this was a Corinthian slogan. We've seen some of those slogans throughout uh, our passages going through 1 Corinthians that Paul had to then address and then correct or maybe modify a bit if they were misunderstood. So concerning spiritual things, the question that I think Paul is going to be addressing for us this morning, probably a question that the Corinthians had to Paul, is who qualifies as spiritual? And so Paul's interest is in establishing who truly has the Holy Spirit And it is not based on who has the greatest charismatic gifts, but those who submit themselves to the Lordship of Christ. So that's what we're going to be seeing this morning. So as we see, he begins in verse 1, right? Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. Paul does not want the church to be ignorant about spiritual gifts. He does not want the church to be ignorant about these spiritual things, Right, that he's going to be talking about. Or it could be understood as these things that come from the Spirit. I do not want you to misunderstand. I do not want you to be ignorant about this. Now, we tend to be opposite in the church today. The church is very ignorant about spiritual gifts. We know this because the church is all over the place when it comes to spiritual gifts. We're all across the board on the topic. In some churches, it's just utter chaos, when it comes to spiritual gifts. Dangerous churches who abuse spiritual gifts, things like holy laughter and tongues as a sign of salvation and trying to resurrect the dead instead of grieving over the dead. I mean, these things, it's, it's chaotic and that's not how these things were intended to be used. 
So maybe I've already offended some people this morning. If you grew up in that kind of church, um, I'm not saying there aren't believers in that church. What I'm saying is when church service has become a place of chaos and there's no order to how these gifts are being used, it's dangerous and it leads people astray. And the reason why it's dangerous, and this, is, this isn't even in my notes, but this is what we kind of come back to over and over again, is there's a danger in what is called subjectivity. What I mean by that is when something is subjective, it could be different for you than it is for me, and there's no foundation to go back to to say, hey, this is wrong or this is right. And when you have chaos in the worship service and you have people healing over here and speaking tongues over here and and doing holy laughter over there and you have a honey barrel over here where people think they can stick their head in and see the Holy Spirit and no one can say that's wrong or right, you have no foundation. It's just subjective. And that's not how God's word is. That's not how God works. God is a God of clarity and order. You you know when God is speaking. You know when God is working. This is what Paul comes back to over and over again when he's addressing in multiple letters these churches. You know, people always ask, like, well, how do you know, like, if you're saved or not? Paul says over and over, the Spirit of God testifies. He is the one who testifies to your heart. By the word of God that you are saved. Why? Because it is by the spirit of God that you can rely on truth. You can't rely on your own mind. You can't rely on your own heart. You can't rely on your own experience. You have to rely on the testimony of the Holy Spirit within you. But that means that therefore that testimony of the Holy Spirit is going to be very, um, it's going to be submitted to the Word of God. It will not depart from it to the left or to the right. So God, so these are, there are some churches who misunderstand spiritual gifts to the point that they make themselves dangerous because they become chaotic in how these gifts are used. And even to the point where some doubt their own salvation because they haven't expressed some sort of amazing, miraculous gift in front of people. There's this podcast, it's called, you'll have to bear with me, I have a little bit of a stuffy knows this morning, but there's this podcast, it's called Cultish, and in this podcast, they interview this woman who is kind of part of this charismatic movement um, of this church for many years after she was saved, and one of the issues she had was she even went to like this, um, this school of supernatural ministry that this church kind of had. It's a big church, they have the school of supernatural ministry, and she was doubting her salvation. She's like, I know I was saved, and then I went to the school, but then everyone was experiencing these things that I wasn't experiencing. They would ask me, have you had contact with your personal angel yet? No, I haven't had contact with my personal angel yet. Have you experienced the holy laughter? Have you spoken in tongues? No, I haven't spoken in tongues yet. No, I haven't experienced the holy laughter. And they say, well, maybe you're not saved then. And so she was, be, she was doubting her salvation. She was trying to contact, spirit, you know, she was kind of trying to make contact with the spiritual realm so that she could experience some of these gifts and these, these miraculous wonders that it seems like everyone else was experiencing there. And that's just not how it works. That's demonic. Then there are those who think spiritual gifts only mean sign gifts. There are those who, when they think of spiritual gifts, all they think about is healing, tongues, and apostleship. And so because of that, they spend little to no time in anything that has to do with spiritual gifts because they think that the sign gifts are done, and therefore, um, 
they are a sign. So you can have two ends of the spectrum. You can have those who look at these kind of supernatural gifts and they say, well, those don't exist anymore. And so therefore, I don't even want to talk about spiritual gifts or anything that even smells like spiritual gifts. We just need to stay away from. And, and, and that's to their own detriment as well. And then on the other end of the spectrum is you have those who, if you know, they, they kind of are in awe. If someone speaks in tongues or heals, they're in awe of that present person must be super spiritual. How in touch with the Holy Spirit he or she must be in order to speak in tongues, right? Or something along those lines. Or call themselves a prophet. We've seen that as well. They want to go by, you know, their name like prophet such and such. And, um, but this is interesting because Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant about this. I don't want you to be unaware about this. And Paul actually uses this expression multiple times in his letters about something that he thinks is very important that he wants to establish clarity on in a place of confusion. The same uh, words, the sa- same expression of I do not want you to be unaware is used in 1 Corinthians 10.1. It's used in Romans 1.13, uh, Romans 11.25, and 1 Thessalonians 4.13. I want to look at just, you don't have to turn there, but just listen real quick. This is what Paul says in Romans 11.25. He says, For I do not want you, brethren, to be unaware of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel under the fullness of the Genti- until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. I find that interesting, that where Paul uses the same expression for wanting unity within the church, we still have division as well. And then in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So these places that Paul is saying this, that I do not want you to be ignorant, I do not want you to be unaware, not only are they very important, but it is places where it seems like a lot of Christians are ignorant and unaware, even today. Now, I think that this is because Satan wants to attack in these areas. The areas that God wants the church to be informed about is where Satan attacks. But yet, these should be areas of unity, and we should expect that they would be clear, not confusing. And so the confusion lies within us, not within the Word of God. Amen? Amen. So pay close attention I'm only covering the first three verses, but then Pastor Heath's coming up. We're going to work through these next few chapters here on spiritual gifts, but play, sorry, pay close atten- attention to this critical truth. Why is it so critical? Why is Paul considering this so critical? Well, I think our next two verses here show us. Verse 2, because its confusion will lead to worship like the pagans. And verse 3, its confusion will distort the gospel and how one can be assured of that they are in Christ. Verse 2 says, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Now this, this idea of pagan worship, excuse me, and these mute idols actually goes back all the way to Genesis chapter 11. 
In Genesis chapter 11, we have the story of the Tower of Babel. So up until this point, the world has been kind of united as, a, as one people. And as one people, they uh, are from the, uh, excuse me, from the lineage of Adam and Eve, right? And then after the flood, they are from the lineage of Noah and his descendants. And not too long after that, we have this story of the people of the world as one people making a name for themselves. And so what God does is they kind of have become this prideful people and have stayed in one place is they've built this tower up to the Lord and so God sees it, comes down and he scatters the people. And he scatters the people across the globe into different nations in different languages. And so these pagan nations began after God scattered the people. And they began uh, to worship in their pagan ways. This is, this is interesting to know in biblical history because what we see is a lot of these pagan nations, they have creation accounts that resemble elements of Scripture. And they also have flood accounts that resemble elements of Scripture. And so a lot of times you have, uh, you know, secular scholars that come to these ancient accounts and they go, wow, see, so this must be why the Bible's not true. We know the Bible's not true because it's just one of many accounts about creation or just one of many accounts about the flood. And it's like, well, no, maybe it's reversed. (laughs) Maybe it's the fact that everybody knew that the flood had taken place. Everybody knew that creation had happened. And because they were scattered and they walked away from God, they had to make up their own false stories about it. But then what happens is, they, so they have their creation account, they have their flood accounts, and then we also see they created their own temples and they created their own laws. And it's interesting to see how even their temples and their laws are a perversion of how God wants to be worshipped. It's a perversion of God's laws. It's a perversion of God's temple. So they make their own idols as well to fill these temples But as God says, these idols are dead and therefore they are mute. I have a couple passages on that. The first one is in Habakkuk 2.18. How often do you turn to Habakkuk? Habakkuk 2.18, it says, What profit is the idol when its maker has carved it? Or an image, a teacher of falsehood? For its maker trusts in his own handiwork when he fashioned speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, awake, or to a mute stone, arise. And that is your teacher? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all inside it. But Yahweh is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. So it's interesting. You have all the, (laughs) look at the contrast there. So you have these idols that cannot speak, so you have people that speak on their behalf, right? They, they make these idols out of wood, stone, and clay. They overlay them with gold, they beautify them, and then they put them in the temple, but they don't speak. Why? Because they're made with human hands. They're made by God. They're made by human hands. And now look at the contrast. What is the contrast? God says, God says, 
These idols are, me, are mute, and yet you expect them to be your teachers. On the contrary, the Lord is in his holy temple, and he does speak. And what he says is, let all the earth be silent before him. God speaks, not the idols, right? Again, in, in uh, Psalm 115, we have a similar idea here. It says, why, starting in verse 2, why should the nation say, where now is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot hear or see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Then in verse 8 it says, Those who make them will become like them, and everyone who trusts in them. What happens when you make idols in your life or when you trust in the idols of your life to speak to you, to satisfy you, you become like them. You become dead, deaf, blind, mute, immobile, unproductive, useless. Instead, we are to be silent and let the Lord speak. So we contrast these mute idols, and I think I lost my place now. No, okay, there we go. We contrast these mute idols with the triune God who is living and active, and He speaks. He is called the divine Logos. He is the Word, right? He has given His people His divine revelation that He has called God-breathed. And it is His Holy Spirit who speaks on our behalf and communicates with God. It is God who speaks. But this God speaks with order and clarity. He does not speak with confusion and chaos. So if we abuse spiritual gifts, we will become like the pagan worship service. You know, one of the stories that come to mind is when Elijah is uh, contesting with the prophets of Baal, and he has this, this altar, and he's silently waiting on the Lord, but yet these prophets, are, they're just in utter chaos. If you read that story, they're dancing around, they're cutting themselves, they're calling out in all these different ways for their gods to come down and make fire upon the altar. That's not how our worship is. We are the ones who are silent. We are the ones who listen to God as He speaks. As we sing worship this morning, right? As we come and hear the Word of God being preached, as we fellowship with one another, as we take communion, these are not us being chaotic. This is not about us. This is about God speaking through His Word. When we sing, we need to sing God's Word back to Him. When we preach, okay, I'm not preaching my own words. If I preach my own words, don't listen to me. 
Seriously, don't. It's, I, I have nothing to say in and of myself. It's the word of God that speaks, and we are silent. He uses us as instruments. He uses us as tools, but it is he who speaks. And then verse 3, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, there's different understandings of the historical context behind this. Some have believed that what Paul is confronting is false teachers who have come into the church and even began teaching that uh, Jesus in his bodily form was accursed, but in his uh, divinity he was fine. And um, this is a form of Gnosticism. It's this, it's this you know, Paul, or, sorry, Ralph had just spoken about the hypostatic union, right? He used that big, that interesting word to talk about the union of Christ. Christ, uh, Christ was, Jesus Christ was, when he was born, was joined to humanity inseparably. And so when Christ does his ministry on earth, there is no separating his humanity and his divinity. He is united. And so what Gnosticism was a heresy that tried to do is say, well, we don't like the body. We only like the spirit. The the physical world is bad, but the spiritual world is good. So therefore, Christ, Jesus can't, God can't join himself to something that is bad. And therefore, uh, they had all these different views of uh, how God became man. Uh, Some of these views were basically, he he wasn't actually joined to a human body. He just more kind of possessed one, you know, like a, like a demonic kind of possession. And the problem with that is if Christ doesn't, bec- if Jesus Christ isn't actually united to mankind, then guess what? We have no hope for salvation. Christ has to be man and die on our behalf. But that was one of the issues that was going on at the time that people may have thought, well, maybe we have false teachers, these Gnostic heresy, uh, heretic teachers coming in and teaching that the body of Christ was accursed. Um, you know, th- th- this, this could be the case, but really what I think uh, is the main takeaway here is the contrast that Paul is making between those who have the Holy Spirit and those who do not. And it really comes down to what do they say about Jesus? Not what can they physically say about Jesus, because any unbeliever can say that Jesus is Lord. But what their heart professes about Jesus. If our heart is professing that Jesus is accursed, well, of course that person, <laughs> that person isn't, uh, isn't, doesn't have the Spirit indwelt in within them. But if a person from his heart is you know, confessing that Jesus is Lord, then that is someone who is joined to Christ and the Spirit of God is testifying in him. Well, now, why would this be important? Why, why would this... So Paul is kind of making this, this uh, Christological context of who qualifies as spiritual. It's important because you have this confusion going on in the church and we're going to talk about this later on, but where these gifts are being elevated over others. And, and, um, and so, you know, you can kind of fall into this same chaos today where 
you know, you have those false teachings of, well, if you don't speak with tongues, you know, you don't really have the Holy Spirit. And so what Paul's saying is, no, no, that's not true at all. Anyone who confesses that Jesus is Lord from their heart, right? That genuine confession where the heart is changed and born again and made new and you confess that Jesus is Lord, you have the Holy Spirit. You are spiritual, So how do you answer who's spiritual? Well, it is the one who confesses from their heart that Jesus is Lord. Why? Because only that can come from the Holy Spirit. That cannot come from the flesh. The heart cannot cry out, Abba, Father, unless it is made new. And that only comes through the Holy Spirit. So what Paul is going to argue is that even though there's a plurality of gifts, there is only one gift giver. And so you had division in this church over these gifts and ignorance concerning them. You had some elevating certain gifts over another because one looks more spiritual How does this? How might this relate to us today? You know, and, and I'm, I'm, you know, breaking away a little bit from maybe the the more charismatic churches. But how might, how how might this affect us today? That we would need to wrestle with something like this. I think we are still in a place in many churches where we are all about experience when it comes to worship. You know, when you have people come into a worship service and they go, you know, I mean, the preaching was good, but the music was a little bit boring. I just didn't really, ex- I didn't feel, I didn't, ex- you know, expressions like that. I didn't feel the Holy Spirit. I didn't experience the Holy Spirit. Um, you know, sometimes we, we get lost in these ideas where spirit feel, spirit-filled worship must feel a certain way or else it's dead. It has to be, uh, you know, a preacher needs to be very charismatic in order to seem spirit-led. You know, there's a lot of very gifted, spirit-filled preachers who are not the most exciting people to listen to. And then there are those who know how to captivate an audience but what comes out of their mouth is poison. And so when we elevate experience, like many of us do, doctrine or theology takes a back seat to experience and feeling. And this is how you end up with churches like Bethel. This is how you end up with churches like Hillsong with a huge musical influence because it creates a good emotional response. But their lyrics, if you listen, are usually very shallow. They won't seem shallow because they, they, they evoke a good emotional response. So we go, oh, this must be of God. This must be deep. But, but if you look at their preaching, if you look at their doctrine, they're false. And they have not stood the test of time. They get tossed to and, fro, and to and fro by the waves of culture, 
by the doctrines of men. And this is how you end up with preachers who lead thousands a week with seeker-friendly churches because they go, hey, he can preach. But he's charismatic or shallow or even worse, heretical. But the problem is it seems so genuine, so raw, so relational, so real, and so unreligious. And the reason why it seems that way to us is because we're the ones who are ignorant. We don't want to be like Corinth. Paul wants us to be aware of things like how the Lord has gifted people for ministry. So that we aren't tossed to and fro. So that we aren't captivated by false teachers. So that we aren't captivated by false dead worship. So today what we're seeing is the opposite. Today we're seeing a lot of the younger generation actually going back to liturgical churches. And so they're fed up with the phony experience and the fog machines of the unreligious churches that offer no real substance. But the problem is many of them are simply trading one type of experience for another type of experience. Again, out of ignorance. And so they go to these liturgical churches many of which have just as bad theology and doctrine as the non-liturgical churches, simply because they offer a different, new kind of experience. Hey, I grew up in a mega church, but now I go to this you know, Episcopalian church, and they have good liturgy there. It's a new kind of experience. So for those who grew up in the typical kind of non-denom church, where they say, like, no creed but the Bible. Liturgy offers something fresh. And they think that they're experiencing the Spirit in a new way. But again, it's just about experience. It's it's built on ignorance. And you know what? What's going to end up happening is they'll either walk away from it or their next generation will say the same thing that they just said. And they go, well, we don't like the whole liturgy thing. Let's have free worship. And the church will always face this challenge of elevating certain gifts, certain experiences as more spiritual than another. And so Paul is confronting that. This is why he says too, that no one who is led by the Spirit will blaspheme God. If you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you are spiritual. And you have been given gifts from the Lord. You have been given spiritual gifts. Now, by the way, before I move forward, I should say something. I don't mind liturgy. I like liturgy a lot. Um, I'm just saying that if you go to one or the other, liturgy, non-liturgy, which is just another form of liturgy, for the sake of experience, both are dead in that way. Um, But if you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you are spiritual, It is the same Holy Spirit as the apostles had. It is the same Holy Spirit as other believers had. And it also means that you were given the privilege and responsibility of spiritual gifts. God has put together His church in such a way that they are gifted with the spiritual resources needed for the ministry that He has called the church to. But we have the responsibility to utilize them And 
Um, This tends to be a problem in a lot of churches where the minority of people do the majority of the work. Well, the problem with that is if you are saved, you have the same Holy Spirit that I do. And you have been called to the Great Commission just as I have. Now, you may not be called to be a teacher. Your spiritual gifting may be something different. But you are uh, no less equipped for the Great Commission. You are no less equipped by the Spirit of God for serving in the body of Christ. We have to recognize that. And if we don't, what tends to happen is you have just a small group of people who seem super spiritual and they do all the work. Why? Because people look back and say, well, I mean, I could never be like that. I could never speak like him. I could never disciple like him. Yeah, it's probably because God doesn't want you to. He has something else for you to do based on your gifting, based on how you're designed, based on what the body also needs beyond just a bunch of hands or a bunch of feet. Well, where do we look to for this? Ultimately, we need to look to Jesus Christ as the example of the Spirit-filled minister. Right? It is Jesus that gives us the picture of the Spirit-filled life. And it's not because of His miracles. It's not because He fed 5,000 it's not because he, um, you know, fed the hungry. It's not because he raised the dead. Those things were to show his authority over sin and death and creation. The way that we look at Jesus as the spirit-filled um, life is because he submitted everything to the will of the Father. His prayer his participation in worship, his preaching, his teaching, his healing, his feeding, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his return. What does a spirit-filled life look like? It's, it's not just this, this hyper-spiritual, all these miraculous wonders kind of life. It is a life that is submitted to the will of the Father. It is a life that is submitted to God as revealed in his scriptures. So do you want a super spiritual life? Do you want to be really attuned to the leading of the Holy Spirit? Then you must submit yourself in obedience like our Lord Jesus Christ did. This means obedience to the Word of God. This means disciplined prayer and worship. This means submission to the leadership of your local church. And it also means being ready for divine appointments. And if you've done experiencing God before, as we have in this church, then you know that those four things I brought up there are from that. How do you know the leading of God? Through the Word of God, through prayer, through the local church, and through circumstances. How do you live a super spiritual life? Your life is submitted to the Word of God, to prayer, to the local church, and to the divine appointments and place that God has put you. So Jesus has given his spirit-filled ministry to his church because he has filled them with his Holy Spirit. And let me tell you something. You were called to such a place and time as this. 
Sometimes I have a friend, uh, he's a very dear friend of mine, and we joke about the fact that he's, he loves old things so much. I mean, he, he wishes he could live, you know, in the early 1900s. Um, he's just really into a lot of that stuff. That's cool. But, but he also recognizes that he wasn't made for that time. He was made for such a time as this. It is no accident that you were in Illinois. It is no accident that you were born whenever you were born. You know, but in this you know, time period, you're alive now. So, It is no accident that you are the age that you are in this time period that you are in. You are called to have spirit-filled ministry in this place, in this area, and in this time. And it is our Lord who has equipped you to do so. And in fact, not only that, but God has also equipped even our little church here with the gifts that are needed for the ministry that God has given us. God wants to work through you. The Bible also calls us, uh, the church, two uh, terms that are very important for this. The first one is the temple. Right? We, we, as the body of Christ, we are the temple of the living God, right? Because we are united to the true temple, Jesus Christ. Well, what does the true temple do? He cleanses the world of unrighteousness. So what is the work, our temple ministry work as the church? We bring the cleansing work of Jesus Christ to the nations. We are also called the bride of Christ. We are joined to Christ in his dominion mandate over the world. Genesis 1.28 is the dominion mandate that he gives to Adam and Eve, but that is broken in the fall. How does God restore it? He restores it through his son, Jesus Christ, in the Great Commission. If you look at the Great Commission and you look at the dominion mandate, the wording is very similar of what God has called us to do. God is doing a work and he has called us as his helper to join him as his bride in that work. So we are called to be ministers of the gospel in this lost and dying world. And he has given us the gifts to do that. So we have to ask ourselves, are we? Are we doing that? And then the follow-up question for you would be, how? How do I know that I'm doing that? I want you to be thinking through that these next few weeks as we go through the, the idea of spiritual gifts and how God wants us to be ministering to one another within the body of Christ and how God wants us to be ministering to a lost and dying world. Ask yourself, are you doing that and How? Yeah, you may not be the evangelist who goes and stands on a soapbox and, and, and preaches the word to a big crowd of people because that's not how you're designed. Right? But you are no less equipped for the great commission that God has called you to. So hopefully that helps alleviate some confusion as we go forward, that we recognize that these spiritual gifts are for the work of the kingdom, right? They're certainly not for elevating self. 
They're certainly not for making us look more super spiritual than others. And so, my prayer with this introduction is that we are uh, anticipating how God is going to be speaking to us in these coming weeks. And I really do pray that God would be speaking to your heart as to what personal ministry God is calling you to. What, what is that going to look like for you? And um, how is that going to be done through our local body here at the Oasis? And we're excited to partner with you in that. Because we know that there are some hands in here, there are some feet, right? There are some ears, there are some eyes, but all of us together make up the body of Christ. And we can't say to one another, I have no need of you, right? The eye can't say to the ear, I have no need, and the hand can't say to the foot, I have no need of you. But that's for another week.